This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Amen. Thank you, Lewis. And good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'd love to start this morning with a story, um, but it's not my story. It's a story of somebody else's uh, that I read. Uh, it's a great man, a man I admire, uh, one of what I think as the heroes, modern-day heroes of the faith. And he tells a story of going on a train trip with a bunch of his mates, and as you're doing when you're a devoted follower of Jesus, stepping into ministry and all manner of things, and you're with like-minded people, you talk about it, and it's really obvious that you are a Christian and that you have a faith in Jesus. So he tells this story of going on this train trip and someone overhearing this and wandering over to them and very genuinely just actually saying, could you actually explain to me what it is that you believe as Christians? I'm really interested in knowing, can you explain to me what it is that you believe as Christians? And this pastor guy recounts the story of fumbling, of trying to work out, how do I explain everything to this person? What is it that we believe? And so he started talking a little bit about his testimony, and then he started talking about some great gospel truths, and it was all just coming out wrong and just, just, just not right. Uh, and a couple of minutes into the conversation, the, the, obviously the station, next station comes up, and the guy goes, well, actually, this is my stop. Thanks anyway for trying. Thanks anyway for trying. Now, I'm, I'm reading this story knowing that this guy is one of the clearest, most compelling teachers of Christian truth. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if he can fumble a golden ticket like that, what hope do I have? <laughs> what hope do the rest of us have? Um, but it was also kind of reassuring to know that, oh man, we get it, don't we, as Christians? That sometimes when it comes to actually putting words around what we believe and why we believe it, when we're put on the spot, sometimes we can fumble it. Those words just aren't there. They don't feel natural. They don't feel ready to go. And that's what we want to talk about uh, this morning. Paul asks a rhetorical question uh, to the church in Rome. Uh, and it's this. How can they believe, speaking of those who don't know Jesus, particularly uh, the Jews, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? The answer is obvious. Of course, they can't. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Of course, they can't. And so how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's you, my friend, and that's me. We are those who carry the good news of Jesus wherever we go. Beautiful feet. That's what you have, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Beautiful feet. Well, we are in uh, a mini-series at the moment. Um, sorry, beautiful on the good news. Um, uh, about a ripple effect. Uh, so if you're just joining us today, welcome. Um, we've been looking at everyday missional practices um, that Christians can put into practice in their life. Uh, and we've called this the ripple effect, the idea that, that if we do these things, that if we live these ways, they'll have a ripple effect into the lives of those who don't yet know Jesus. And so I'd love to do uh, a recap because we're a couple of weeks in now. So we started with the practice of prayer. What we care about, we pray about. That's the fundamental premise of week one. And so we want to be interceding. We want to be bringing before the Father the names of those that we know and love who don't yet know Jesus, to be praying for them, that God would soften their hearts and to pray for our own uh, opportunities to share faith with them. 
Uh, In week two, we looked at the pattern of just blessing others, serving others, so that the light and the love of Jesus would shine into their lives. Last week, we looked at what it means to live distinctively, to live as salt in this world, you know, flavoring the world around us, living visibly different because of our relationship to Jesus. And this week, we want to look at our words. Words are important. Words are valuable. Words communicate. They can be compelling, really powerful. And Paul recognizes this. And so he, pray, he asks for prayer for the ways that words would come out of his mouth. We come to this passage quite a bit uh, in this series. Colossians chapter 4. So Paul, being aware of his, I guess, his missional opportunities to proclaim Christ, he asks a particular group of believers in a church called Colossae to pray for him. And he asks them to pray for opportunities for him to make known, to proclaim, to share, if you like, to declare the mysteries of the gospel. And he prays particularly that when he does, that it would come out clear, that it would be really obvious and understandable when he does proclaim Jesus. He doesn't want to proclaim the mysteries about Jesus and everybody to sit there and be like, thank you for that, it's still a mystery, thank you for trying anyway, right? That's not what Paul wants. And as we said in week one, there's a great pattern here for our own prayer life, to be praying for open doors to share Christ, for praying that God would give us clarity and the right words to speak in those moments and to borrow Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter six, that we would also pray for ourselves for courage. But Paul here is asking prayer for himself because he recognizes that what he is doing or how he expresses his missional living is not necessarily what everybody in the church at Colossae is going to do. So Paul is effectively an itinerant evangelist church planter. He goes around and he does this. He stands up in front of groups of people and he speaks. He monologues. Sometimes he dialogues, whether it's in the synagogue or the marketplace, um, sometimes in amphitheaters, sometimes from prison cells, right? But he does that kind of preaching, teaching, uh, evangelism. And he knows that not everybody in the church in Colossae is going to express their missional life in that same way. They're not going to travel around. This is their home. This is where they live. And they're normally rubbing up against shoulders of people who don't yet know Jesus. And how weird would it be to stand up at a dinner table with your mates who don't know Jesus and just say, I have a little speech prepared and launch into a 20-minute sermon about the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. Has anyone ever been in one of those cases? I didn't think of this when I wrote this, but um, (laughs) I jogged my memory. I've been to a wedding where that happened. Uh, So anyways, never mind, we'll move on. Um, People will take every opportunities that sometimes are not opportunities to proclaim the message of Jesus. Uh, So Paul, he's asking for himself, knowing that he's got a very particular missional vocation. Uh, But he flips and he talks about, well, well, what about them? He asks them to be wise in the ways they act towards outsiders. That's part of what we've been talking about the past few weeks. And he says, let your conversation. So he's asked prayer for his proclamation, his public preaching and teaching. And he says, well, as for you, you're you're joining me in this, making the most of the opportunities to make known the goodness of Jesus through your conversations, through your interactions with your friends, your families, your work colleagues, those people that you go and buy fish from in the market week in and week out. 
Your conversations are what Paul encourages the church in Colossae, and I think, by extension, us too, in the ways that we share Jesus and use our words to do so. You know, there was a really encouraging bit of research done a couple of years ago, and I've, uh, I've used this a couple of months ago, um, where McCriddle researched, uh, interviewed a whole bunch of people who don't know Jesus about, well, what are some of the things that would prompt you to think about spiritual, religious, or metaphysical things? So there's people who are not in church, these are people who are not in an alpha course, these are people who are just out there going about their daily lives, not necessarily aware of or thinking of or pursuing faith or faith in Christ. And they ask them, well, what would cause you to think about that? Or what does, has caused you to think about those things in the past? The number one thing is what? Conversations. Yeah, you're literate. Well done. Conversations. I think that's amazing that the number one thing that's going to cause non-Christians in Australia in 2023, based on this research, to consider to be open to spiritual things is not coming to NVBC and listening to a sermon, was not having the itinerant evangelist do a rally in their city. It's a conversation with a friend who loves Jesus. A conversation with a work colleague that they know goes to church. A conversation with a teacher that they know are Christian. And this was represented across all of the generations. You'll remember I put that slide up a couple of months ago. Every single generation, this was their top response. The number one thing, apart from you baby boomers, because you had a tied top three, which was in there too, is conversations. So when the Bible talks about conversations and being missional, I think we should pay particular attention because this is really strategic for us in Australia in 2023. So what does Paul have to say about it? Well, he says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Now, I read this as carrying a double meaning. is that in our conversations, we should be gracious and express grace towards the people that we're in conversation with. And at the same time, our conversations should be full of grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that has saved us. Conversations full of grace should be seasoned with salt. Um, So that springs off the back of of last week, that we sprinkle our conversations, that our conversations are flavoured by the things that make us distinctly belong to Jesus. And so Paul has this in mind that, that what we speak and how we speak, even why we speak, is shaped by our relationship to Jesus. Uh, And it's our expression of our devotion to him. It's our expression of what we have experienced in him. And and underneath that, he's not talking about this, but underneath that, there is this baseline motivation as well. But I want others to know the truth. And I want others to experience what I have experienced in Jesus. You see, for the church in Colossae, Paul is making it really clear that it's the everyday conversations that are going to be the context for their missional words. And the same is true of us today. You know, there's a parallel passage um, to this in, in 1 Peter, where he talks about always being prepared with an answer if anybody asks you for the hope that's within you, right? It's the train thing. If somebody on the train asks you, what is it that you guys believe? He says, you should always be prepared with an answer. Now, I've 
preached on that passage before, run workshops on that passage before, and I'm sure you have as well. Uh, and, and the kind of big application or take home is, well, let's, let's, let's workshop what we would say in that moment, which I, I do think is really important because we don't want to fumble the ball if we get that question, right? But what we end up doing is coming up with a little pre-prepared speech, a little memorized mini-sermon. Um, we want to get out a napkin and draw some diagrams and go through two ways to live, right? Not very natural in conversation. Very good for the one in a thousand times someone just straight up asks you, tell me, tell me everything that you believe. But often in conversations, there's expected to be a back and forward, right? So let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everybody. It's the idea that we're talking, and then you ask a follow-up question, because that's how conversations work. I share a bit, you share a bit, you ask me something, then I answer, and then I ask you something. That's how conversations go. Not always in the moment either, but over time. And so someone you might have been in conversation with might months later ask and say, you know the other day when you were sharing about having like a peace from God around that decision that you had to make? Can, can you explain to me how you knew that was from God? Right, that, that's the kind of picture that Paul is painting for us. A conversation, uh, things that just go back and forward as we naturally, authentically, personally share the good news of Jesus. Not insert our pre-prepared mini-sermon into a conversation or into uh, a wedding speech or into a dinner conversation. Words are important. There's something to be that permeates our conversation, what we speak, how we speak, that helps point people to Jesus. Making sense so far? I think so. And so I'd love to introduce you to a concept called gospel fluency. Uh, so this is by a guy called uh, Jeff Vanderstolt. I don't know if he coined the phrase. He's certainly the one who I, I found it from. Uh, and Jeff Vanderstolt is part of a missional movement. Um, he's kind of really in that space about how Christians, everyday Christians can share faith and make disciples through their life. And he recognized that so many of us fall down when it actually comes to that point of opening our mouths and wrapping words around what is the most important thing to us and what is the most important thing for us to share, to uh, help somebody get their head around. And he recognized that, that what it comes time to is when it, we're in a conversation, like, my, like that pastor friend, kind of in that train, you go, oh, all of a sudden there's this, there's this clunkiness with our words. And he's like, well, what we need to develop as Christians is a fluency around sharing things of faith. That it shouldn't feel unnatural. It shouldn't feel forced. It shouldn't feel like we need to do a mental translation in our mind before our mouths open. But it should be so natural and so normal, so authentic, that it flavors, it permeates, it's just in our conversations, uh, both with Christians and with those who don't yet know Jesus. So has anybody attempted to learn another language? Mm, yep, great. Anybody any good at it? Yeah. Oh, David is. Oh, no. <laughs> um, look, I am terrible at learning other languages. Uh, I recognize that. That's one of the things I own about myself. You know, even when we went on, on holidays overseas, you know, you try and remember one or two words, and then, and then it comes to the crunch, and you're like, oh, which one's goodbye and which one's hello again? Uh, you know, I kind of don't want to say, okay, hello, and then walk out the door in their language. Uh, but if I was to learn um, French, they've got good baked goods, and, you know, I've got a thing for baked goods. If I was to learn French, right, 
What is the best way for me to learn French? Do you guys, you guys mumble worse than me? Conversations, talk to somebody. Yeah, yep. Do a course. Yep, yep. Go to France. Thank you. The best way to learn another language is to immerse yourself in that culture, right? Uh, it's, it's to live there. Uh, it's to converse in it. It's, have to, it's to have to go to the shops and order in that language. It's to listen to the music, uh, listen to French music. It would be to watch French movies or watch our English Hollywood movies with the French subtitles on underneath, to immerse yourself in it, to be in cafes and hear people talking and conversing in French. So if I was to go to France now and start this process of trying to learn how to speak in French, and I've got some lovely French cheese, and I want to round out my meal by going and getting a breadstick, right? I'm going to walk into a bakery, and what am I going to do? I'm going to think through what I need to order in English. I'm going to walk in and go, I desire to have a breadstick to go with my cheese. One breadstick, please. What are those words in French? And I'm going to butcher this, but un baton de pan, civil play because I'll say please at the end, because I was raised right by my mum and dad. Un baton de pan, civil play. But there will be this clunkiness, won't there? I'll walk in and I'll be like, what do I need to order? One bread stick, please. I'll do the translation in my brain. I'll steal myself, be like, all right, here's my moment. Un baton de pan, civil play. And the person will obviously look at me and say, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully give me my bread stick. (laughs) So with my cheese. Right, there's a clunkiness to it. There's an unnaturalness to it because I'm not fluent in it. I'm not familiar enough with it. I'm not comfortable and confident enough in it. And so there is this kind of weird clunky where I have to do the translation in order to order the breadstick. But if I live in France and if I learn the language and if I get to the point where I'm so comfortable and so confident in it that I walk in and I don't think in English, one breadstick, please, but I go in just knowing that I need a breadstick and think in French, well, then I'm fluent in the language, aren't I? And I think that's one of the measures. When you start to think in the other language, you know that it's become native to you. You know that it's become natural to you. I once had a mate um, share, dude, I've started dreaming in the other language that he was learning. Right? That's when you know that it's really taken root in your life. When you start to think in the language, when you start to dream in the language, when it is natural for you to speak, you are fluent in it. And the point that Jeff Vanderstolt makes, and I think the point that Paul would wholeheartedly agree with, is that Christians are called to be so immersed in the gospel. We're called to so preach the gospel to ourselves, rehearse the gospel, understand how the gospel is good news in every area of our life, that we think in gospel, we navigate the world, we interpret things through the lens of the gospel, we dream in gospel. It's the thing that sings in our hearts so much so to the point where we're just fluent in it. It's our native tongue, it's our natural language, and then of course it will permeate and saturate our conversations. Well, does that make sense? And wouldn't that be a wonderful gift to one another? And wouldn't that be a wonderful gift to the world where we don't need to sit through clunkily trying to do some translation, but the spiritual things, the good news of Jesus, 
It can't help but come from our mouths. It can't help, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. You know, one of my favourite little passages, I didn't start a timer and uh, neither did Josh, so thanks, mate. Um, uh, In the book of Acts, um, it's from Peter um, Peter and John, uh, and they're called before uh, some religious leaders. They've been preaching Jesus. It's just they've been speaking about it. So what they speak about, it's natural to them, right? Because they've been immersed in this discipleship culture. They've been immersed in the gospel, following Jesus around for years, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and then the preaching um, in Acts chapter 2, seeing all these people come to faith in Christ Jesus and the life of the early church. Like, they are so in it. They know nothing else. And at one point, they're kind of threatened. They're beaten and they're threatened that they must stop speaking about these things and teaching them. And both of those things, there's a distinction there. So the leaders say, we don't want you publicly teaching about this anymore. We don't want the pop-up evangelist rally in the marketplaces and in our synagogues anymore. You're not allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to speak about it either. You're not allowed to have conversations with people about this. And there's their response. Well, as for us, we can't help it. (laughs) We can't help it. What else are we going to speak about? It's such a part of who we are. It's such a part of our experience in life. It's such a part of our understanding of how the world works. We cannot help but speak about these things that we have seen and heard because they are so real to us. They are so true to us. They are so dear to us. That the idea of shutting that part of our lives off from our speech completely, do what you want to us. But we are going to keep speaking about these things. That's pretty full on, isn't it? Gospel fluency. When we are so familiar with the gospel, when we have so deeply embraced the gospel, it comes out in our speech and in our conversations. Not pre-rehearsed sermons, but just naturally, authentically sharing our personal experience of the God who loves us and the God who saves us. A quick final point, and that is if you want to know how easy it is to start speaking about the good news of Jesus, just think about what is the most natural and easy thing that you speak about to others? Something that you find incredibly natural to be authentic and personal and you don't need to think about it, you don't need to pre, pre-record or script what you're going to say. And that's when you share good news, isn't it? You share any sort of personal good news and it's just a joy. It's natural and it's easy, right? So someone gets engaged, I've seen this time and time again, Uh, they come in and they tell every single person in the church the story of how they got engaged, of where they were and where the question was asked and and what food they had, and and rightly so, because it's exciting, it's good news, and there's no sort of thinking about how should I say this or what words should I wrap around this. There's a naturalness, there's an ease, there's a genuine excitement and passion for the good news that they're sharing. If you've ever met a grandfather that's just had um, their first grandchild, right? you go have coffee with them. They don't talk about themselves at all. It's all about celebrating the birth of their grandchild. I don't know what's good news for you, but you guys are looking at me like, I haven't met any of these people. Right? You guys do good things happen to you? Yeah, good, good. Do you tell people when good things happen to you? 
Okay, good, because this point's going to be really bad if, <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> no, we've seen it all the time, don't we? It's so natural. You know, I come here on a Sunday, and if the Mariners have won the night before, I hear about it. I don't need to take my phone, turn my phone on, right? Like, I hear about it because it's so natural for it to be injected into conversation, and it's not forced, and it doesn't feel weird, and you don't need to script it. It just naturally becomes part of your conversation because, hey, a good thing happened, and I was stoked, I was excited, and it comes part of your language. Uh, I was watching an interview uh, this week. I don't know if anybody enjoys um, motorsport, uh, but the Goodwin Festival of Speed, a few nods in, in the room, excellent, uh, is this amazing, amazing thing that happens in the UK uh, every year. Someone who just has far too much money and basically the best driveway you've ever seen <laughs> and, and runs this competition every year, the fastest around this track on their private property. And so cars from everywhere get to come and race just one lap. You don't get chances at this. It's just like you, you nail it or you don't in front of all this giant kind of, kind of crowd of people. Uh, and a couple of uh, years ago, a guy by the name of Max Chilton uh, ran that little thing, which is an electric single-seater vehicle that literally has a fan underneath it that goes 14,000 RPM that sucks the car to the ground, right? So it's got great traction. And he broke a 23-year record. That's good news. That's good news. It's good news for the car manufacturer. It was very good news for Max. Um, anyways, the point of this story is I was watching an interview with him a year and a half later. So a year and a half later, I'm watching something um, where, where he's there talking about something, and someone goes, oh, that lap, that was amazing. It was like 39 seconds. Talk us through it. Talk us through the, through the lap. A year and a half has passed. And I was like, well, I'm not a race car driver. Um, unless we count going down to Erina through the middle. Um, <laughs> take those corners at 59.9 kilometres per hour, just amazingly, racing line. Um, but yeah, I'm not a race car driver. I'm like, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not interested in this. This is not why I'm watching this video. Uh, but he starts speaking. Oh, I've become mesmerised. No script, no sense that it was pre-rehearsed. A year and a half later, and he's recounting what's happened at every corner, where the trees are, where the... the uh, yeah, kind of the stands were, the reaction, the reaction of the marshals. And he's using objective truth and, and, and statements around, you know, fan speed, weight of the vehicle, size of the vehicle, how fast it can accelerate to 100 kilometres an hour. But he's talking about sub his subjective experience of it as well, just the way the car vibrates and how violently it kind of gets off the line and how excited he was and what he would have done better if he had another shot at it and all this kind of stuff. And it must have gone for five minutes. Four, the 39, second lap, 39 second lap, he spent five minutes speaking about it. And it was compelling because it was just so genuine and so personal. He was clearly passionate about it, and I found myself sort of leaning in, not skipping through ahead of the, of the video, but hanging on every word this guy said. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could talk about Jesus like that? Wouldn't it make sense for us to talk about what he has done for us like that. It was a 39 second lap. What Jesus has done for us is so personal and it's so real, so transformational, of eternal significance, both to us and to the people that we share that with. Can we speak about him like that?
Let your conversations be full, saturated, overflowing with grace, seasoned with salt. Just the right amount. You want to be wise, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everybody who asks a follow-up question. This is the ripple effect, hey? One final thought before we move to communion. Is that Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think when it comes to sharing our faith, to having the things of God, the goodness of God, permeate our conversations, I just don't think that's going to fly from our lips until it flies in our heart. Let the goodness of God dance in your heart and it'll dance on the tip of your tongue. The good news about Jesus so pour into you and fill you up that it just overflows into all of your conversations and all of your interactions. And in part, trust the results to the Lord. That he will lead, that he will guide and he will convict those who listen. So with that in mind, we're going to lead into a time of communion. I'd love you leaving today with the goodness of Jesus singing in your heart and dancing forth from your lips. And so around the room, communion is set up. This is the great reminder of who we are and who he is and what he has done. The reason why we're all here the reason why we have good news, that God loves us, that he's saved us, he's redeemed us, that he's brought us home, adopted us into his family, paid the price in full, filled us with his spirit, not because of anything that we have done or could ever hope to repay. This is all the gift of grace, the grace of a loving God who would leave his throne on heaven into the brokenness of our world as a frail human baby. Live perfectly, show us what it means to live a full life and then lay down his life in our place, on our behalf, so that we would become right with him. That's the best news any of us are ever going to hear. And it doesn't just affect our eternal destiny, it affects how we make decisions. It's good news for how we parent. It's good news for how we do marriage, do decisions, navigate relational conflict. It is so all-consuming how good this good news is. So let it dance in your heart so it'll dance on the tip of your tongue. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus. We want to thank you so much for the great love this perfect love, this wonderful love that we experience in you. God, this newness of life and newness of relationship with you, it is so transforming. It is such good news. God, we love you. We love you. And so we set you apart in our hearts as Lord Jesus so that we would be always prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us because we know it. We know it, that we know it, that we know it, that we know it. 
We don't just know it, we're in church on Sunday. We don't just know it, we're in our connect groups discussing it um, during the week. We don't just know it when we're leading youth or leading um, kingdom kids. We know it in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our sporting teams, on the good days, on the bad days. You are always good and you're always present. And we love you so much. Would you give shape, I pray, to that love in the words that come out of our mouths, in the conversations that we have, in what we speak about, in how we speak about it. May it in some way, shape or form, help point others to you. Be so personal, so authentic, so genuine, so compelling that it would invite others to know this same God of the good news for themselves. So be with us as we remember now, Lord, and stir afresh our affections for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.